Hello and welcome to another weekly teaching from Vineyard Community Church, St. Louis. So I am part of a fairly large family. I am one of 34 first cousins. My uh, mother is uh, the youngest of seven. My father is the next to the youngest of six. And so I have a lot of aunts and uncles, but one particular family uh, is, is very, very close. I have one aunt and uh, her husband, my uncle, they are, they are like second parents to me, even still. Their kids are more like a brother and a sister than, than cousins. And my uncle, over the last several years, he's in his 80s now, and over the last several years, he has been dealing with Alzheimer's. And I don't know if you've known anyone that has gone through uh, dementia and Alzheimer's, but one of the things that happens with my uncle is that he gets into these conversational loops where he will just say the same thing over and over and over again. And, and it, it does change a little bit depending upon the input that he's given, but not very much. He'll just kind of start over and over and over. And he might do that a dozen times in a row or even more. What I have found is that when I'm around my uncle, the conversation pretty much always turns to heaven. And I don't know if that's because he somehow remembers that he and my dad used to debate about the end times very loudly in, in our backyards when we were kids. And so he connects me with that, or if he can remember that I was a pastor for a long time. He does remember my name. I'm not sure what he remembers about me at this point, but the conversation almost always turns to heaven, or maybe that's just what he's thinking about. So it's something that he, whoever is with him, he talks about now. And the way the conversation will normally go is he'll begin by, I didn't start my timer. Let me start my timer. So we're going to pretend the sermon started now and not uh, a couple of minutes ago, all right? So anyway, he, uh, the way the conversation will normally begin is he will talk about going to heaven and seeing Jesus on his throne, and he'll just begin to weep. And he'll say, oh, how wonderful that will be. Can you even imagine? How could anyone ever forget that, seeing Jesus on his throne. Oh, I want to be there. And then he'll start to do what I would, I can only describe as a kind of theologizing about heaven. So he will start talking about how heaven will be this place where there is peace, and, and, and that seems to be, just, just seems to be wonderful. But then he'll wonder, well, how can that be? Because people will be in heaven. And if, if people are in heaven, well, people tend to be greedy, and greed leads to to hostilities, and hostilities lead to war, and then war leads to devastation, and devastation is the opposite of peace. And so how could it be that heaven will be a peaceful place if human beings are going to be there? He guesses that somehow God's going to have to change human beings in heaven. Otherwise, there will just be war in heaven as well, because wherever human beings are, there will be war. And I find that kind of chain of logic to be rather fascinating, fascinating from a theological point of view, but also fascinating when it comes to just thinking about our world. Because my uncle, he will also say, he'll also say that it seems like wherever people are, there's going to be war. Now he says that not understanding what's going on in the world today. He doesn't know about the war in Ukraine. He doesn't know about the recent coup and hostilities in West Africa. He doesn't know about the battling of warlords in, in the Sudan. He's not aware of the potential conflict in Asia, especially between the United States and China over Taiwan and, and increased hostility or increased tensions in the South China Sea. He, he, he knows that there have been natural 
tragedies, but he's not aware of the heat waves that are being experienced in different parts of the world, the wildfires that are spreading. He's not aware of the drought and the, the, the floods and all of the things that people are dealing with in this world today. He's not aware of the political division and here in the United States and elsewhere, the hostilities that often arise because of that. He's not aware of the specifics of the social and economic exploitations and the marginalization that often come from the isms that we wrestle with in this world. He knows that there's sickness and grief. As a matter of fact, one of the things I think is, is just truly painful when it comes to dementia and Alzheimer's is that over and over again, it's like he has to remember that his mother passed away. He's reminded that his father passed away, and he grieves for them as if he's grieving for them for the first time each time that he hears about that. He knows that there's sickness. He knows that there's grief. There's grief. I think he even remembers that my dad, who has, has struggled for from multiple sclerosis for 44 years now. Uh, I think he knows that there's suffering there and there's sickness there on some capacity, but he's not really aware of the specifics of it. But whether or not we find ourselves having conversations with people like my uncle, we're probably, many of us here, most of us here, are probably in a very different situation from my uncle is in, but we also experience this world and all of its tragedy and all of its suffering and all of its pain. And I think we, we can find within ourselves a longing that my uncle is trying to articulate and, and what becomes his musings in the midst of Alzheimer's. We know deep down that things are not what they are supposed to be. And as followers of Jesus, I think what we realize is that what we need, what we're longing for, what we can't and won't be satisfied, whether we realize it or not, until we get it, is not heaven, actually, but it is the kingdom of God come in fullness. For the last several weeks, you have been working through this series on the story of the kingdom of God. You've been looking at different aspects of the kingdom of God. And like I said, it's a privilege to be able to join in this conversation with you today. That said, the kingdom is something that has been central to us in the vineyard. It is something that is important to who we are. It's at the core of our theology, but it's also at the core of our practice. Both our beliefs and our practices are centered in our understanding of the already and the not yet of the kingdom of God. It was one of the, the great, uh, I think, gifts that the vineyard, especially through John Wimber, who's one of the founders of Vineyard Churches, has given to, the, the, to Christianity at large and the church at large, not just an understanding that the kingdom is already not yet in a theological sense, but that it actually impacts the way that we live and act and respond to each other and the events that we experience in this world. That said, this notion of the kingdom of God, which we would describe as the reign of God or the rule of God, or maybe even better, the, the, the active reign and rule of God, whether in our lives or in, elsewhere in the world, this understanding of the kingdom can be challenging. It, the kingdom of God as a concept and as something we try to live out can be confusing. It's even confusing for scholars, or at least it was confusing for scholars for some time. And that's because of the way that the kingdom is talked about in the scriptures. Sometimes you'll read a passage, especially in the New Testament, and the, 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 the normal interpretation, I think the common sense interpretation of that passage is the kingdom has come. That with the arrival of Jesus and his ministry on the earth, the kingdom is breaking into this world. God is reigning in a way that he has not reigned before and has not reigned for some time. But then elsewhere, even from Jesus, you will hear the kingdom talked about as if it has not yet come or the kingdom is coming. It's in the process of coming. So the kingdom has come. The kingdom is coming. And then you have this understanding, of the, this explanation of the kingdom that seems to indicate that the kingdom is delayed. 
So the kingdom has come, the kingdom is coming, the kingdom is delayed, and then the kingdom will come. It kind of leaves you with these questions about what exactly we're talking about. Today, I want to focus on that last part. I want to focus, focus on what it will look like when the kingdom comes in its fullness. And what we see, oh, I've got to remember, I'm not used to the clicker here. So what we, and they told me to point it, oh yeah, there were the kingdom comes in fullness. Ha! What we see is that when the kingdom comes in fullness, everything will be made right. Now this again can be a bit confusing because the passages that we have about when the kingdom comes are not the easiest to understand. They tend to be in parables. So the kingdom, is descri- the kingdom coming is described in parables. It's described in, in prophetic or what we might call apocalyptic literature, a subject all of its own. So I can explain that after the service if you really want to know. But it's, it can be found in those kinds of things, which are, which are filled with symbolism or imagery. When it is mentioned in a straightforward way, it's just alluded to. It's not given to us in detail. It's not clearly described exactly what it will be like. But one of the things that we find, whether we're looking at the Old Testament or we're looking at the New Testament, is whenever it talks about the coming of the kingdom, it tells us that everything will be made right when the kingdom of God fully comes. And so to kind of look at this, I want to look at those passages, one of those passages that is filled with symbolism today. It's actually a passage that you looked at briefly earlier in this series. I've been following along online. So it's, uh, it's something that you looked at briefly, but I just want to look at it again in a bit more detail, and that's Revelation 21 through 22. So we're just going to begin in Revelation 21. And so this is John on Patmos. He's having these series of visions. Again, the language here is very, very symbolic and filled with imagery. And this is what John says at the end of the book of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. I I didn't skip, I didn't, there you go. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So the first thing that we see as we look at this passage of Scripture, I think, is that the culmination of the kingdom will bring the new creation. The culmination of the kingdom will bring the new creation. Here we have, this passage begins with with the language of creation and new creation. John's vision, in that sense, takes us back to Genesis chapter 1, which describes God creating the world. And scholars ask a question about this passage here. Is this talking about uh, a, new, a brand new creation in the sense of, is it talking about a completely uh, different heaven and earth, or is it talking about the renewal, the restoration of heaven and earth? And there's some debate here. Um, say they tend to disagree about this. The language in these chapters, I think, gives itself more to this notion of renewal, Again, God says, I am making all things new. It's continuing to be made new. Later in chapter 22, which we're going to look at here in just a few minutes, it will say that that this coming of the kingdom, God's reign on the world, is going to bring healing to the world and to the nations. 
That said, though, I think it's important just to focus on this word new for a moment. It says that there will be a new Jerusalem. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. Now, that word new can be used in a couple of different ways. You could say, uh, you could use the word new to mean like the latest in the series, new, new in measure, if you will. Or you can use the word new to mean almost an entirely different kind of thing. Think of it this way. So in that sense, new in kind. So think of it this way. If I told you that I got a new car, what I mean by that is one of two things, right? I, I either mean I got a new-to-me car. It might not be brand new, but it's, it's a used car, but it's new to me. Or I mean that I got the latest model of a Honda or whatever kind of car I, I want to get, right? It's a 2024 model of a car. So that's what I mean. In other words, it's the latest in a series. It's the next thing. It's new by measure in that sense. But the word that's used here when it talks about the new heaven and the new, and the new earth is not new by measure. It's actually new in kind. In other words, if I came to you and I said, you know, I've traded in my Honda, because I currently drive a Honda, and I told you I traded in my Honda and I got a hovercraft. And I didn't mean like the ATV, right? I mean like what you see in Star Wars, like the, a hovercraft, or, or maybe, you know, the, the vehicular equivalent of of the hoverboard in Back to the Future. Like, if I told you I got that, you could technically call that a vehicle, right? In that sense, you might be able to call it a car, but it does not mean the same thing. It's not just the latest in the series. It's not just new by measure. It is something that is almost completely different. It's like something we haven't really seen before. That's the new heaven and the new earth. That is the new creation that is being described here in this passage. God is doing something that has never been seen before when the kingdom fully comes. And it is in this united new heaven and new earth that God will dwell with us. You actually have this refrain that we find throughout both the Old and the New Testament. They will be my people and I will be their God. The dwelling of God has come. In chapter 22, which again we're going to look at here in just a moment, it will actually say, says that we will be able to see the face of God. We'll be able to, to experience God face to face, which other than the Son, other than Jesus himself, has never been done before on, with, by anyone on earth, right? We'll be able to see the face of God. There will be no distance, no divisions, no walls, no veils. Nothing will separate us from the pure presence of God that we will experience. God will dwell in us in this new heaven and this new earth. And this actually takes us to something that I think it's easy for us to miss, even when we look at like the creation narrative that we find in Genesis chapter 1. Because one of the things that scholars now tend to agree on, it's a bit controversial, but they tend to agree on now, following this theologian, if you're interested, named John Walton from Wheaton College, is that, that one of the things that is happening, besides the description of the world in Genesis chapter 1, is that it is described in such a way to indicate that God is creating a dwelling place for himself on earth. It is a kind of temple construction narrative that is taking place in Genesis chapter 1. That God is saying, I am making this place for me to dwell with those I love and with the creation that I love. Obviously, things went wrong. And that is not the experience that we have had in this world. But that will be the experience in the new creation. This world itself will become a kind of temple. The new Jerusalem will be a temple because God and the sun will reign there. They, they will be the sun and they will be the moon and they will be the light that we will get to experience them in ways that we do not experience we, can't, we do not experience them yet and have not experienced them before. So this is the first thing that we learn when we come to this description of the kingdom of God fully come. 
that it will bring the new creation. Next, it will bring an end to sorrow, suffering, and death. The culmination of the kingdom will bring an end, an end to sorrow, suffering, and death. The old order will pass away, we're told. The new will come. A new in which the curse of sin will be undone. There will be no more tears. There will be no more death. There will be no more mourning. There will be no more crying. There will be no more pain. Because the one our hearts long for will be with us in the fullest measure. Everything we want, everything we need, everything we hope for will be ours in the coming of the kingdom. This uniting of heaven and earth. And notice what this seems to indicate here. It seems to indicate that the final destination for us as human beings is not heaven. Actually, if I'm reading it right, and I may not be, but if I'm reading it right, my understanding is that, that whenever heaven is talked about in the New Testament, it's talked about more as a temporary dwelling place. The ultimate dwelling place for us is the new heaven and the new earth met together, come together. It is the renewal of God's creation. It is God finally experiencing this world as his temple, his place of dwelling among us. So when that comes, there will be an end to all the things that cause us suffering, all the things that cause us sorrow. No more sickness, no more injustice, no more death. In this renewal of all of creation will be this reuniting of body and soul in a way that we have not experienced before. Because if you read the ancients, and this isn't just in the Old Testament or the New Testament in the scriptures, but if you read ancient literature, their understanding of death was that death is a separation. That death is the separation of the body and the soul. The resurrection that gets described, especially throughout the New Testament, but even in the Old Testament, the resurrection that gets described is a bodily resurrection where soul and body are reunited together. And this will be, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, not a body that is perishable and corruptible, but one that is imperishable and incorruptible. Our immortal souls will be united with an immortal body, and we will be with him forever and ever. No more pain, no more tears, no more injustice, no more death. Just us and our God experiencing the fullness of his reign and into darkness and into corruption and injustice, a renewed creation that no longer groans in birth pains is what we will begin to experience. I remember years ago, we had a, we had a, a, a young man who was a part of our church in the Springfield Vineyard. His, his wife was actually our church administrator for quite some time. And he was diagnosed, I think at 24 years old, he was diagnosed with leukemia. And he died just a few days before his 26th birthday. They were, they were key leaders in our church. They were, they were just central to the life of our church. It was a time of mourning, not just for, for his wife and for his, his family, but for the church as a whole. And this, uh, this young man especially really connected with my son, who was, who was young at the time. He was only about uh, seven when, when Nathan, uh, the young man, passed away. And I remember my, we're driving down this road after, after Nathan's death, and we passed this uh, clinic, and it had the term, uh, it was a cancer treatment clinic, and so it had cancer treatment in there. And I thought Sam was just kind of 
playing with whatever he had in the back car, but somehow he noticed that sign, and he said to me, he said, Dad, I hate cancer. And I said, me too, buddy. Me too. No more cancer. No more multiple sclerosis. No more Alzheimer's. No more power buying and, and, and the destruction that comes from that. No more debates about politics. Can you imagine a world like this, right? Like where you don't have to deal with that anymore because body and soul are reunited in the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation, and everything really will be made new. Not the latest in the series, but a hovercraft for all of us, right? I mean, not literally. I mean, that's not, that's not in there. There's no reason for me to actually believe that. Uh, but but you, you see, it's going to be something completely different. All that our hearts desire will be ours. Because the new Jerusalem descends, and we have God's dwelling place on earth, his temple finally restored as he initially intended it. Okay, next quick passage. I'm going to have to move fast. So next passage here is uh, Revelation 21, 22 through 22, 5. So John continues. We're jumping down by, from quite a bit. He goes into this, this kind of wild description of the new Jerusalem, which is which kind of tells you its imagery because I think even in the new heavens and the new earth, this one seems impossible because it's basically 1,400 miles wide, 1,400 miles long, and 1,400 miles tall, right? Like, it would, like, crush the United States, the, you know, the, the, the contiguous states of the United States, right? It would stretch beyond the Mississippi from the east, uh, from southern Texas into Canada, and then just as high yeah, as that. But again, it's trying to tell us that God is going to be doing something different in this world. Okay, so he says here, talking about the new Jerusalem, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does, I'm going to read it from here because then I'll know where to scroll. Uh, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what it is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations." No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Notice there, that's not a, that's not a typo, right? I went back and I looked. Even in the Greek, it's plural. It's not he will reign forever and ever. It's they will reign forever and ever. So the next thing that we see as we're looking at this is that the culmination of the nation, the culmination of the kingdom will bring the blessing of the nations. It will bring the blessing of the nations. I think this is very fascinating. We see this both in Isaiah's prophecies and Daniel and elsewhere in the Old Testament and in other references in the New Testament and here in Revelation. I think we think about the coming of the kingdom as sort of a, a wiping out of, of nationalities, a wiping out of people groups. But that's not the way it's described here. It seems like nations will still exist, but they'll be under a new order because God will reign over all. He will dwell with them. 
The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Like all of the produce, all of the production that comes from these nations will be ultimately given to God, will be for God, and for God's use, and for the use of everyone. There will be no more economic exploitation, no, no longer others getting rich and, and on the backs of those who are getting poorer and poorer. There will be none of that anymore in this coming of the kingdom because all of it will be done for God and given to God and unto God. It will have his blessing on it. The glory and the honor of the nations, again, will be brought into it. This echoes, I think, Revelation eleven fifteen. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Imagine that once again, a world where even the rule of the nations comes under the rule of God. So we won't have to debate about politics anymore because we'll be serving the king. And I can't help in thinking about that to think about this essay that C.S. Lewis wrote many, many years ago. And in this essay, I can't remember the title of it off the top of my head, but in this essay, he basically makes the, the he, he builds this argument that democracy is medicine, it is not food, which is kind of a strange way of putting it. And what he's saying there, and let me just say first, before I get to what he's saying there, yay democracy, right? Like, I don't want to live in a non-democracy in a fallen world. I want one where I have some kind of say in what's going on in the world. I don't trust people enough to believe in the divine right of kings in this world. There's only one divine and therefore only one who rightfully should be a king. And that's the king of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus himself. I mean, so I just want to make that clear for now, yay democracy. But what C.S. Lewis is trying to say there, what he's trying to say is that what our hearts long for, though, is not self-government. What our hearts long for is not democracy. What we need, what our, longs, what our hearts long for, is a king. We need a king. If we have a kingdom, we need a king, right? And we need the king of the kingdom to, to come. And when the king of the kingdom comes, even those nations that still exist, those people groups, because that's another way of translating nations here, those people groups that still exist, ultimately, they will exist under the reign of the Lord as he makes all things good. A long-awaited promise, in other words, will be fulfilled. You know, we're told that the leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations in this passage. Going all the way back after the fall, and God is working to begin to make things right, he calls this one man, Abraham. And when he calls Abraham, he tells, I'll just read it to you, it'll be faster. He says, the Lord said to Abram, who will, whose name will be changed to Abraham, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. That will be the nation of Israel, right? And I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Blessed to be a blessing. This is what we find repeated in the prophecies, and the prophets call, call, as the prophets call Israel back to faithfulness to God. It's what we find throughout the New Testament. Why are we blessed? We're blessed to be a blessing to others. And this blessing of the nations that was promised, going all the way back to Abraham, will be fulfilled in the new creation. It will be fill, fulfilled when the, when the kingdom fully comes. So the culmination of the kingdom will bring the new creation. It will bring an end to sorrow, suffering, and death. It will bring the blessing of the nations. And then it will bring the complete transformation of human hearts. This is the answer to my uncle's question. Right? Not in heaven, but in the new heaven and the new earth. How can humans exist and there be no wars. 
And the answer is, there will be the complete transformation of the human heart. We will experience that. So what we have here is a return to the Garden of Eden. Only this time, our hearts will have been transformed and we will faithfully serve God. We will have access once again to the Tree of Life and that will continue our faithful service to God. The King living in us and being with us was faithful and we will be renewed so as to live out His faithfulness on this earth. All the enemies of the kingdom, including the flesh, will be defeated. All of them will be defeated. And we will be able to live in faithfulness to God. And then finally, the culmination of the kingdom will bring a new creation and into sorrow, suffering, and death, the blessing of the nations, the complete transformation of the human hearts, and it will bring renewed purpose. How does this passage end? They will reign forever and ever. Who are they? It's the servants. God's servants will serve him faithfully and they will reign forever and ever. What in the world does that mean? I mean, we have hints of this. Paul says that we'll judge angels and things like that, and I don't know what that means exactly, but it sounds cool. I, I'm not, I don't think I'm a big judger, but judging an angel sounds like something that might be neat uh, to do at, at some point. I don't know. But what does it mean, though, that we will reign, they will reign forever and ever, or we, those who are followers of Jesus, will reign forever and ever? Again, it's unclear. It doesn't get described for us. It doesn't get defined for us. But here's my hunch. Going back to Genesis 1 again. God says, let us make humanity, man or mankind, in our image. And in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then he gave them a commission. He gave them a vocation. He gave them a purpose. One that actually my son just said yesterday as we were driving around, uh, and I thought it was interesting because he didn't know I was going to say this in the sermon, but he said, one that we have done a really, really poor job in carrying out, and that is to steward the earth, to steward God's creation. It says to have dominion over, the, over it, but the idea there is to have a loving care and concern for as we rule over it. It's the tending of the earth, the tending of the garden. And I think this is what this is saying, that we will once again be restored to this purpose where we will be living out this call that goes all the way back to the creation, that we will be those who are tender, tenders of this garden, those who tend this garden. We will take up our role as stewards of creation, this time stewards of the new creation. And this time, because of the coming king, we will be faithful. Okay. So all of that sounds good. But what does that mean for us today? Right? That's the coming kingdom. But what does it mean for us now? George Eldon Ladd, who was the theologian whose work really inspired John Wimber in this understanding of the already and the not yet of the kingdom, had this description of the kingdom. He said that the kingdom is the presence of the future. Or if you will, the kingdom is the future breaking into the present. One of the things that we see as we read the Apostle Paul, especially in Ephesians chapter 3, is that the church is evidence of Jesus' victory over powers of darkness, and it's evidence that God's purpose will be fulfilled that the kingdom that has come, is coming, is delayed, will actually come. And all of those evils that hurt us and keep us from what we long for in this world and what we long for from God will be not only vanquished, but will be abolished. It is, it is this announcement to the powers of darkness that your time is limited, and ultimately your time is up. As we live out the future 
in the present. So how does the understanding of the future kingdom influence us today? Well, we witness to the coming kingdom by living the future into the present. Now, I know that's a weird way of saying that, but I decided to keep it. Right? We witness to the coming kingdom by living the future into the present. And the reason I could have said by living according to the future in the present, but I didn't want to say that. I want to say living the future into the present, and here's why. I want to make it very, very clear that we do not bring the kingdom, and we do not build the kingdom, because it isn't our kingdom. I can't build something that's completely outside of my power. I can't build something that isn't mine or isn't within my means, right? It isn't my kingdom. It's his kingdom. I can invite the kingdom. I can receive the kingdom. I can proclaim the kingdom. I can act from the kingdom, but I cannot build to the kingdom. I cannot bring the kingdom. Only the king can bring the kingdom, right? And so I'm living what I'm experiencing from the future in the present. I'm living the future into the present. All of those things that we read about the, the fullness of the kingdom's coming, I can begin to get glimpses of that now and then live it in my life. Live it in the way that I interact with others. So how do we do that? How do we live the kingdom, live the future into the present? Well, I think there are a few things that we can do. The first is we can practice hope. Because that's ultimately what these, this, the, these descriptions of the kingdom, as, as symbolic as they are, as filled with imagery as they are, as confusing as they can be, this is ultimately what they're saying to us, that we can experience hope. But it's not just that we can receive hope. I think hope is something that we can practice. We can meditate on the kingdom of God. We can meditate, we can reflect upon and contemplate the coming kingdom. We can take those experiences that we get in the kingdom and we begin, can begin to think about not only how we can we just be blessed by them, but how can we live according to them. We can practice hope. What I'm hoping for for us, and as we were praying this morning, this is something that just came to me during our prayer, is what I want you to experience, you and you and anyone else who will look at me at this moment, right, and let me catch their eye. What I want you to experience is the ferocity of hope. Not just something that you wait for, but something that you insist on, something that you refuse to let go of. That I, It's almost like a violent uprising of hope within you. I will not be dissuaded. I will not be discouraged. I will not be... I will not, I, I will, I, I'm going to come into... I'm going to, I'm going to practice hope. Lord, I hope in you. Lord, I hope in you. I hope in you. Help my unhope, my, my lack of hope, right? I believe, help my unbelief. I hope, help my lack of hope in this moment to practice the hope that comes from God, to reflect upon it, to meditate on it, to say the king is coming, the king will come, everything will be made right. This is not the reality that I will live with forever. There is another reality. There is a new reality, and I can hope in that. Next, practice unity. Practice unity. Okay. So, Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says that God has revealed through Jesus his purpose from the beginning of the, from before the creation of the world. And that is to unite all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that God has taken the two, Jews and Gentiles, and has made them one. He's made them into one body. And that together as one body, they become a temple here on earth. Very interesting. Creation is a temple. We have the tabernacle. We have the temple. We have Jesus who comes to the flesh, dwelling among us, who is a temple while on earth. And then the church becomes a kind of temple. But it's only the church united that becomes a kind of temple, right? And then we get to Ephesians chapter 3, 
where he says that it is this church united, this revelation of the mystery, this church united together that serves as the, the notice to the powers of darkness that God is fulfilling his purposes, that this is a certainty, this is going to happen. And then in chapter 4, and for the rest of the book, the letter, Paul begins by saying, so make every effort to maintain the bond of unity, you know, to, to maintain unity. Make every effort to maintain unity. Unity, the unity of the Spirit. So we should do, because we're looking at the uniting of heaven and earth and the uniting of all peoples under the rule of God, we should, be, we should be seeking, pursuing, relentlessly pursuing unity with one another. I hope that for you. I, I think I've experienced evidence of that with you as, as members of this church. And I hope you continue to experience that, that you continue to pursue that, the relentless pursuit of unity. Okay, it says I have one minute left. So the last part, do the stuff, Right? We witness the coming of the kingdom by living the future and the present. We can do that by practicing hope, by pursuing unity, and by doing this stuff. Because here's the thing. Every time you do this stuff, every time you pray for someone to be healed, whether they're healed or not, but you pray and they experience the love of God, you pray and they experience maybe an emotional healing that they're, that they're longing for, every time you pray and you see a, the, the hold of demonic forces uh, someone released from the hold, hold of demonic forces in their lives. Whenever you pray for justice in this world, whenever you, you seek uh, the love of God and, and for others to experience the love of God, every time you do this stuff, do this stuff. I, I hope you know what that means, but that was John Wimmer's words to say that we want to do the things that we see them doing in the Bible, right? So we want to pray for people to get healed. We want to see them get healed. We want to pray for people to be released from demons. We want to see them released from demons. We want to pray for all of these things to happen. When you do this stuff, the kingdom comes. And when the kingdom comes, it increases your hope. When it increases your hope, it increases your capacity to pursue unity. And when it increases your capacity to perceive unity, it increases your ability to live the future into the present. So do it every chance you get. Fail a thousand times, but don't give up. Do this stuff over and over and over again. Experience the glimpses of the kingdom as you pursue the ultimate fullness of the kingdom when Jesus returns and makes all things.